I would speak it clearly and that you would come through to us, speaking your word uh, through, uh, through the scriptures to us. Father, we're very grateful that you are trustworthy, that your character is altogether true and good. And so we would ask that you would convince us of this in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said together. Amen. You know, the other day I was talking to uh, Piper, um, daughter number one, child number two, and uh, she was asking me if I remember the conversation correctly, if it was uh, Awana night, and she so looks forward to Awana, and uh, it was. It was a Wednesday afternoon, and uh, I said, yeah, tonight's, tonight's Awana night, and are you excited? And she said, no, because it's not Awana night. And I said, yeah, tonight's Awana night. It's, it's Wednesday, and so you better get ready. Go ahead and get your shoes on. We're going to go. And she said, no. It's not a wanna night. I said, honey, have I ever told you something that's not true? I, Daddy, Daddy knows the calendar, and it's Wednesday night. You know, trust, I said, trust me. It's, it's Wednesday. And she said, no, you're wrong. <laughs> I said, okay. No, I'm right. But if you want to believe, believe that, that, that's okay. I said, I said honey, you know, just, just trust me, right? I, I know what I'm talking about. Trust me. Well, today in dispute number four in the book of Malachi, we see God's people question him. We see the people of God question and doubt God. Specifically, they question his character. They doubt that he is a God of justice, that he's active in the world. Well, our section today begins with a charge, as normally in these disputes. uh, God charges his people, in verse 17 at the very beginning, of wearying him. He says, you have wearied me, you have made me tired with your continual words. Of course, that's followed by a a cynical cross-examination. Remember, in in, uh, the book of uh, Malachi, the people of God often question. So they they say, "How, how have we wearied you? How are we tiring you out with our words? Well, God obliges and he confirms his charge against them at the tail end of verse 17. He says, uh, you are wearying me by continually questioning and doubting my character if I am a God of justice. And the section ends as we move into chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, as we see God counter their questions. He is going to address the doubts and the cynicism that they have over his character, over his trustworthiness, over his justice. And he is going to give them an answer to their question. Well, I hope you have your Bibles open. If you don't, you can look on the screen behind me. Let's begin with the charge. Because at the tail end of verse 17, we see God giving a charge against his covenant people. Verse 17 reads this way. You have wearied the Lord with your words says Malachi. You have wearied the Lord with your words. The word in Hebrew here that is translated to weary uh, essentially means that. It means to make one tired. But it's interesting because in a parallel verse in Isaiah chapter 43, uh, verse 24, uh, it's used parallel with a word that means to burden someone with something. I'll read that verse there in, uh, in Isaiah. You have burdened me, the Lord says. You've burdened me with your sins. And you have wearied me, there's our word, you have wearied me with your offenses. So what is God trying to say to his covenant people? He says, you have wearied me. Essentially, he implies that the people's continual words about him were like proverbial weights on his back, with each word adding more and more weight. And he was tired. His, his back, so to speak, was done. He says, I am so sick and tired of hearing you say these words. 
uh, as a parent, uh, I'm sure you've been there if you've been a parent, but uh, confession time, uh, there are times when the children are whiny and you're tired and you're cranky and they are continually uh, asking things of you or maybe complaining uh, about something. You've told them no before and they complain and they whine. And as a parent, I'm sure I've heard uh, these words come out of my mouth more than once. I am sick and tired of you saying blah, whatever, right? Now, parents, I'm sure you don't ever say that, but I have said it before. Um, You know, it's like, you're wearying me with your words, child, right? You are saying the same thing over and over and over again. It's a burden to me. That's that's what the Lord is saying to his people. He's saying, I'm tired of bearing the weight of your repetitive, continual words to me. Now, he doesn't identify the words, but we're going to see it in just a minute, right? Just as I was wearied by my kids' complaints, the accumulation of God's people's cumbersome and continual complaints had wearied him. Well, let's move from the charge to the people's cynical cross-examination. How did the people respond? God says, I'm tired of hearing you say this. So how did they respond? Well, take a look at verse 17. The cross-examination by the people, it's quite simple. They say this, How have we wearied him, you ask? So Malachi gives the charge. You're making God tired with your repetitive, continual words. And they respond by saying, well, well, how have we done that? It could read something like this. How could you ever say, Malachi, that we have wearied God with our words? They want to know specifics. Well, what, what have we said, right? What, what specific words are we saying? They're questioning the charge. So what do you know? God obliges, and he answers their question at the tail end of verse 17, confirming his charge of wearisome words. Notice verse 17 at the end, the confirmation. The people had wearied God in two ways. So we get a little bit of the words, the wearisome words that they were saying. Two phrases. Number one, Malachi says, well, here's how you've wearied God. By saying, number one, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. Number one, and he is pleased with them. That's the first thing they were saying. All who do evil are actually good in the eyes of the Lord. And he's pleased with them. That's the first thing they were saying. But there's another. Or, where is the God of justice? Where is the God of justice? Let's take a look at these two accusations that they were wearying God by saying. First of all, they question God's character. They question God's character. Take a look at the first phrase in your Bible or on the screen. All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. And he's pleased with them. Essentially, they're saying that God endorses and that he delights in evil rather than good. Friends, this is a a backwards view of God, is it not? It's a a flip-flop view of the character of God. See, this is what was going on. The people of God post-exile. They were back in the land, but it was a difficult time. And they looked at many of the the fellow Israelites around them, and they saw the the evil and the the wicked that that was going on. And they looked not only within the nation itself, but they looked outside, and they saw the pagan nations that were ruling over over them and that were influencing them, and they wrongly concluded. They wrongly concluded that since God hadn't judged them immediately, that is, he hadn't intervened, that he approved of them, that he approved of what was happening both within the nation and without. So they question God's character. They reverse it. They say, well, 
God, you're not doing anything about all these evil people, so you must think that it's just okay, right? But that's not all. Notice the second phrase. They say, where is the God of justice? They question his justice, referring to the God who acts justly. Now, they're not so much doubting his character. They're doubting that he's willing to act in judgment. They're saying, God, we expect you to do something, and you have not. You could summarize their accusations against God in this way. The general opinion of the day in Israel was that God approves of evil, and he's not at all interested in dispensing justice. That was what the people were saying. These were the wearisome words that Malachi identifies. But the question remains, why, why were they saying this? I mean, what was going on in their lives that would cause them to question God's character and would cause them to question his justice? Well, I think one commentator by the the name of Burhoff, I think, helps us understand. So I'll quote him at length here. He says this, They, speaking of Israel, they had returned from exile quite a while ago. Now, in the beginning, the external circumstances seemed to justify their messianic expectations. They expected the Messiah to come. He says, The return from exile was regarded as a miracle from God. As a miracle, a miracle from God, the erection of the second temple, which had been rebuilt, and the renewal of the sacrifices caused the people to rejoice. The people had reconfirmed their covenant with God, so things were looking up at the beginning of the return from exile. But he, he continues to write, the latter course of events, however, had been disappointing. He says the messianic age had not yet arrived. The people were still subject to Persian rule, right? They were uh, uh, not independent, so to speak. He says the promised, uh, the promised land wasn't a paradise, as the minor prophets had predicted, but instead the crops were failing. Locusts and drought prevailed. He says religious activities were becoming burdensome and without any spiritual effect. Priests and people alike were violating the covenants. As a result, he writes, the question had arisen whether it still made sense to adhere to the promise of the coming Messiah. So they look around and they say, the kingdom hasn't come yet. Messiah hasn't come. Should we still anticipate him? He says, evildoers apparently had their way without fear of punishment. It made no difference at all whether a person did good or did evil because the law of retribution seemed to be ineffective. So the people look around within the nation and without and they say, boy, this isn't the messianic age that we were expecting. In fact, evil seems to rule, right? God, you're not acting. And so they question him, which leads us to the first principle of the day. You know, just like God's people so long ago uh, were questioning his character, was questioning his justice, friends, I, I don't know about you, but I can do the same thing. We can do that as well. We too can question the character of God. See, the post-exilic people of God questioned God's justice and his character in light of the prosperity of the wicked, right? It's, it's not a new question. God's people have always wrestled with this, right? The people of God, seemingly from the earliest days, had str- they, we've struggled with this. So think of Job. If you read Job, you hear Job, which is probably the very first book of the Bible ever penned. Job struggles with this. The, the evil are prospering. But I, I, I'm trying to obey God, and I'm, I'm getting it, right? What's going on? Asaph in Psalm 73, which Larry, like a champ with a broken arm, still read for us, right? Psalm 73 
Asaph, he almost lost his faith in God because of this struggle, right? We see King Solomon in Ecclesiastes. He struggles with it. Habakkuk, all of these people of God struggle with this question, as did the people of God in in Malachi's day. And friends, we still struggle with it today, don't we? If you're one of them like me who does, it's so easy for us to look around, to look at our neighbors, to look at our boss maybe, to look at our friends who they don't even profess Christ. They don't act like Christians. They're, they're far from the faith and yet they make more money than, than you do. They make more money than we do. Their house might be a lot nicer than ours, their vehicle. Well, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's not like the old beater that, that we drive, right? They have better vacations than we do. We look on Facebook and we're like, hey, I'd like to go there. That'd be nice, right? Their savings account, they seem to be doing more fun, they enjoy more amenities, all of that. It's so easy for us as the people of God to, to do that, to, like, to take a look at people around us who seemingly are living not for, them, uh, not for God but for themselves and say, well, God, what's going on, right? Why do, why do they prosper when I'm simply getting by? Now, we may not say it like these post-exilic Jews, right? We may not say out loud, all of everybody who does evil, God delights in them. We may not say it that boldly, but in our hearts and in our minds, we may wonder, does God delight in those people because they're prospering? Judgment hasn't come. It's not fair. Friends, I'll be honest. I struggle with this as a pastor. I'm like, you know, I have a business degree and I had some, some offers out of college that I could, be, I could be making a lot more money right now and, and here I am and, uh, you know, I, man, what's, what's up with that? I'm trying to serve God and give my life to something that I think is, is eternal. And yet I look around me, and those who don't give a lick about Christ, they're prospering. You know, we sh- God's people struggle with this. We can struggle with this. So how does God respond, right? We've seen the charge. They are wearying God with their words. God uh, says, you're, you're, it's a burden to me to hear you say this all the time. They've said, well, what are we saying, right? He gives them two examples. You've challenged my character, and you've challenged my justice. If I will act in judgment in this world. In verses 1 through 5 in chapter 3, we see God countering the people's cynical cross-examination. He answers those two questions for them and for us. Let's take a look at the first one, counter number one. It's found in verse 1, where Malachi says, The God of justice, oh, he's coming. The God of justice is coming. See, God first responds to their latter accusation, the second accu- accusation, the second question that they ask, right? Where is the God of justice? Well, Malachi says here in verse 1, the God of justice is coming. And what he does, stick with me, in verse 1, is he points to two yet future to them, in Malachi's day, events. Two events that would indicate that God indeed does act in time and in history, in justice, to bring judgment. The first event is this. The first event that Malachi predicts is that there will be a messenger, that God would send his messenger to prepare the way for God coming in justice and in judgment. Notice verse 1 of chapter 3. God says, I will send my messenger. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. God is saying, there will be a day where I will come in justice to show you that I am a God of justice. You want to know where I am? I'm going to show you. There will be a day when I I come. But first, 
before I come, I'm going to send a messenger. And this messenger will prepare the way. Well, well who, who is that? Well, a little bit later in chapter 4 of Malachi, uh, we see that this person will be Elijah, or li- most likely one like Elijah. In fact, 4.5 tells us this. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So in chapter 4, verse 5, we see that this coming messenger is going to be one like Elijah. Friends, who is this? Who is this coming messenger? Well, if you've read the opening chapters of the gospel, you know who this is, right? This is none other than John the Baptist. Jesus tells us this from the lips of Christ himself. He says, you know the guy that was predicted back, back in Malachi? It's John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11, verses 10 and 14. We see that this is John the Baptist, and I'll quote Jesus here. He says this, This is the one, speaking of John, this is the one about whom it is written. And he quotes Malachi. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And then in verse 14, and if you are willing to accept it, Jesus says, John himself is Elijah, right? John himself is Elijah who was to come. So very clearly, God says, I will come in justice. I'm going to send my messenger and that messenger will be John the Baptist. So then the second question is, is who is the one who will be doing the coming, right? Who is he a forerunner to? In verse 1, we see it's referred to a person who simply says, I, God says, I will come, right? He will prepare the way before me. Of course, we know from the Gospels that this is none other than Jesus Christ, right? This, of course, is Jesus Christ. We see that. But that's not it. There's one event, the coming of the the messenger to prepare the way for, for Jesus at his first coming. But there is another event that is prophesied. Take a look. At the tail end of verse 1, the second event is the coming of Jesus in judgment. Then, Malachi says, then suddenly the Lord whom you are seeking will come into his temple, the messenger of the covenant, whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. What the people were questioning, where is the God of justice? Is he going to come? And what is Malachi saying? He's saying he indeed will come. He will come into his temple, the messenger of the covenant, the one whom you look forward to. He will come. Now see, while the first messenger was John the Baptist, the second messenger is none other than the person of God himself in the person of Jesus. Jesus was the one whom they were seeking, the one they desired, the long sought after Messiah, the one whom would initiate the day of the Lord, whom the Jews people, the Jews thought it would be a day of blessing. It would only be a day of blessing and deliverance for them, but due to their covenant disobedience, it would be a day, rather, of judgment. Notice Malachi says, this one, Jesus, he's the messenger of the covenant. I think it refers to the new covenant, which was promised to Israel and poured out upon the church. But we must ask this question. We see the prediction of the forerunner, John the Baptist. We see the coming of Jesus. But which coming does Malachi refer? Is this referring to Jesus' first coming? Well, of course it does initially. But what about this second prediction, the one who would come to his temple, right? Is this Jesus coming the first time? Or is it Jesus coming the second time? Well, there's legitimate room for both, but I think it's Jesus coming the second time for at least three reasons, and I'll share them with you quickly. Number one, first, notice that this coming of Jesus will come suddenly. That's what the text says, right? This coming of Jesus will come suddenly, that is, unexpectedly. Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 44, says almost the identical thing 
about his second return. Notice, so you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So I think this coming of Jesus refers to the second coming. He will come unexpectedly, unexpectedly, but second. Notice, he will come to his temple, Malachi says. When I come in judgment, Jesus will enter into the temple. Well, if you read through the Gospels, you're familiar with the fact that Jesus entered the the temple many times during his first ministry, but I think this is a unique coming. I think it's a little different than all of the times he entered the temple in the first century. No, this is a second coming. It's a little different because in Zechariah 8.3, Zechariah promised that God would come to his temple and he would live there. So the people anticipated this. In Ezekiel 43, we see that the glory of God would once again Fill the temple. And so the people anticipated this. And I think Jesus will bring that. Third and maybe most significant, Jesus' first coming was not for the purpose of judgment, right? We know this. Jesus himself tells us this in John chapter 3, verse 17, that his first coming was to save sinners from our sin. Notice, for God did not send his own son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So the first coming of Jesus was not about judgment. It was about salvation. But this judgment, I mean, this coming, excuse me, that that Malachi speaks of, it's not in the context of bringing salvation. No, it's in the context of where is the God of justice. So notice what we have here, if my interpretation is correct. We have a prediction of the first coming of Jesus sandwiched right next to a prediction of the second coming of Jesus. The first coming of Jesus to save us from our sins. The second coming of Jesus to establish justice in his kingdom. And they're right there, right together, seemingly with no divide. But friends, if you're familiar with biblical prophecy, that's often how it works. In fact, take a look at the picture behind me. I've, I've heard prophecy likened to looking at, at, at a range of mountains, like the ones you see behind me. You're looking from a, a long way away, and one can stand and look at a mountain peak, and there's multiple mountain peaks behind it. And from a distance, it looks like one mountain range, right? It looks, it looks maybe like one, one uh, set of mountains. But you don't recognize that in between the peaks, there's a huge valleys, right? And so take a look at the next slide. This is how biblical prophecy often works. When the prophet looked, he saw the first mountain, the first coming, if you will, the nearer fulfillment, that is John the Baptist would come and Jesus would come to this earth as he did in the first century. Malachi saw that. But then he saw another mountain, so to speak, a second coming of Christ in judgment to judge the world, to show God's people and everyone that he is a God of justice, the far fulfillment the second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord. And that's often how prophecy works. So, God has answered the question, right? The people say, where is the God of justice? And Malachi says, he's coming. He's coming. His messenger will come, John the Baptist, and then he will come into his temple. He will bring justice to the world. But that's not the only question. See, they not only questioned his justice, but they questioned his character. And so in verses 2 through 5, the second counter, if you will, we see God responding to their first accusation. Now, what was their first question? Remember back in verse 1, they said, all who do evil are good in the Lord's eyes, right? He's pleased with them. And so God through Malachi says, no, I'm not pleased with those who do evil. He shows them this because he elaborates on what this second messenger, the messenger of the covenant, we know it's Jesus at his second coming. What will happen? 
What will that day be like? Well, he's going to tell us what that day will be like. Not only is it unexpected, but it will be unpleasant to those who are not prepared. Notice verse 2. Malachi says this, But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? So he's saying, when Jesus returns, who will be able to stand? Of course, the rhetorical question calls for the answer, the obvious answer, right? No one, no one can stand on their own righteousness. No one can endure that kind of judgment. The idea here in verse 2 is that the people of God sought justice. They sought the Lord judging the wicked in their day, right? They sought and they desired this day of the Lord, the coming of the Messiah in his kingdom. They so wanted that, but they didn't realize what it would mean. They didn't realize for them as a disobedient covenant people that it wouldn't be a day of blessing. It would be a day of cursing because they were not pursuing God. You could say they didn't understand what they were asking. They didn't know what they wanted. Uh, Last weekend at baccalaureate, I told a story of one of my dogs. Uh, and I'm going to share another dog story with you, although it's a different dog. Uh, growing up, we had a, uh, a wiener dog, right? You know what I'm talking about, a dachshund, uh, one of those good old German dogs, uh, really long. You know what I'm talking about. We had one of those dogs for years and years and years. And this dog uh, was, a, was a great dog. He was playful, very territorial, you know, so you kind of had to watch yourself around him. But one of his favorite pastimes was chasing cars that would drive by uh, our house. We kind of lived out in the country. We had a few acres. And so, uh, you know, when cars would drive by, he would um, position himself in the ditch by the road as if he wasn't short enough to not be seen, right? <laughs> but he's like, I'm going to hide in the ditch so the cars can't see me. So he hides in the ditch, and he waits for the cars to come. And when they came, he uh, took his uh, long, fat body, and he ran after the cars uh, to, to bite them and to shoo them away to protect his family the best he could. And uh, day after day, he tried to do that until the day that he actually caught one. Um, there was a day when he actually caught a car, and by that I mean he got hit by the car. And so um, he finally caught it, and, um, you know, I think it probably caught him by surprise. I think day after day, he's been looking forward to catching one of these cars, and then the car caught him, and uh, it put him in the hospital. He, he, he wanted to catch a car so badly, but he didn't know what he was asking for, right? He didn't know what it meant. Friends, the people of God were saying, justice, justice, bring on the justice. But they didn't know that that justice would apply to them. They were asking for the car, and they didn't realize what it would entail. Notice, God outlines two results of the second coming of Christ for his people. First of all, there would be a purification of some. There would be particularly a purification of the priests and a purification of the people. Notice the tail end of verse 2. For he will be, that is, Christ's return, for he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. The idea of purification, of cleansing. Verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will, he will purify the Levites and refine them with gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem, the people, will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. And so God says one of the results of the second coming of Christ for his people will be a purifying. Those who accept him as their Messiah, who believe that he is their Christ, there will be a purification. God says there will be a day when you don't question 
whether I think that people who do good or evil or vice versa. No, I will purify a people for myself. But not only that, but the second result will be a judgment of some who don't accept him as their savior. Notice, the second result of his coming is the judgment of those who reject Jesus as Messiah. Verse 5, So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against, and he starts a list here, sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud, laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. See, the people of God who are clamoring for justice upon the wicked, they themselves were doing evil things. They certainly said, God, come in judgment. Come judge those who are sorcerers. Come judge those who are adulterers. Come judge those who are perjurers, because they weren't guilty of those things. But what they didn't realize is that God would come and judge them, because they were defrauding people of their wages. They were oppressing the widows and the fatherless. They didn't care for foreigners. And so God says, when I come, all of those who reject me as Messiah will experience my judgment. Not just the people who you think will. God will be both the witness against them, he will be the prosecutor, and he will be the judge. So it brings us to another lesson for today. God will one day act in justice. That's the point. That's what Malachi is getting at. God will one day, people of God, act in judgment. And so fellow Christian, don't think because evil temporarily goes unpunished that it will never be punished. See, God's covenant people back then and even today, we can be duped into thinking that the God of justice, his retribution against sin and reward will happen, must happen in this life, right? See, God's people then, they looked at their situation around them and within them and they doubted God's justice. It wasn't happening in this life. Brothers and sisters, just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean that it won't happen. And so when your ex seems to be getting away with murder, there are no consequences. When you are wronged, maybe at work, and there are no repercussions, right? When the person maybe who abused you has no legal consequences for all the injustice in all of our lives and in all of the world that seems to go without punishment, God says, Malachi, there's going to be a day. Tell the people, there will be a day. And God says loud and clear, the God of justice is coming. He is coming. Not only do we see uh, in this section that God will act in justice. But this is where the rubber meets the road. Whether we are objects of his divine justice for eternal punishment will depend on what we do with the person of Messiah. What we do with the person of Christ. See, there were two groups here that Malachi describes. One believers and one unbelievers. One set are purified and enter into eternity, and the others are judged because of their lack of faith in Jesus. See, on the day that Jesus returns, the second coming that Malachi predicts, there will be only two options, two doors, two destinies. Of, and it all depends on what we do with Jesus. One set will be purified by the blood of the Lamb and will serve him forever and ever. And the other will be cast into the eternal hell because they don't trust in Christ, the only one who could pay for their sins. So friends, as we close and prepare to share communion together, I have to ask, do you know which group you will be in? on that day? Because the day is coming. The day is coming. Christ will return. And if you're not sure, then I invite you to pray with me now as we prepare for communion. And you can be sure. You can trust in Jesus. You can ask for forgiveness of sins. You can be purified. You can be purchased with his blood. 
And you can know on that day, you will be purified and you will be with him forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask for those here, man, woman, boy, or girl, and they are unsure of their eternal destiny on the day that Christ returns, our great king, to judge those who have rejected him, to purify those who have accepted him, and to establish his kingdom on the earth. Lord, we pray if there is any who have never trusted in Christ, that now, right now, even in the quietness of this moment, in their hearts, that they would cry out to Jesus, the only one who is perfect, the only one who's met the the standard that you demand, which is perfect obedience and perfect righteousness, that they would trust in him who lived perfectly for them, but who also paid the eternal punishment for their sin on the cross that they so desperately need. He rose again to offer them eternal life, both now and forever, and so much more. And so may they now repent and trust in Christ. And for those of us who have, and we know what our eternity will be because we have trusted in Jesus, our Messiah, we anticipate that day of purification when we will have new resurrected bodies. We will be the people that you desire for us to be. We will be like your son, John tells us. And so for those of us who know, we anticipate that day and we share together in communion the remembering of what Christ has done, that his blood was spilt for us and that his body was torn asunder for our sins. We remember his first coming on the cross and we anticipate his second coming. You've taught us that this communion points us backwards towards Christ and it points us forward towards his return. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, the scripture tells us, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, Father, be well pleased with us as we share in communion. We ask it in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen. I'll give you a moment to prepare and to pray. Uh, The music will come. I invite you to come in two lines and to share. If you're a Christian this morning and you place your faith in Jesus, then come and share and remember his first coming and anticipate his second. So take a moment. The music will play, and when you're ready, please share the element, and you'll be free to go. Thanks.